Since I'm here, obviously you realize the Levering family quarantine continues. Uh, they're doing better and hope to get Toby back up here soon. Last week, I just gave you a book report of sorts. Uh, today, I just want to simply tell you a story. Uh, it's a 2,000-year-old story, but it's a good story. And I imagine as an audience, that sounds easy. Well, we're just sit back and hear a story. Uh, here's your part in the story. You need to do some things during this story, if you would. Uh, let me have that first slide, if you could. There we go. First of all, you can listen. Now, that's not an order, because I realize that's optional. You don't have to listen. Uh, I can still see your eyes, so I know if they're open or closed, but uh, that doesn't tell me much. Uh, I still don't know if you're listening. That's up to you. It's optional if you listen or not. But if you do listen, secondly, I want you to, especially today, discern what you're hearing. Are you hearing just me telling you what I think? Or are you hearing some history that's true? You might need to check it out to see if it's true, but it might help you understand. Or are you hearing the Word? And all three of those are going to be in this simple story that I tell you. Uh, if you're hearing the Word, then you need to apply the Word. You can kind of discount what I think. You can discount the history if you want. But the Word is living and abiding. It's active and powerful. It's what's supposed to guide us. It's what's supposed to direct our path. It's what's supposed to uh, be what we don't just hear, but do. The Word of God is special. So when you hear the Word today, I want that to be what you attempt to apply. All right, now, the application is the hard part. Applying it's a little difficult uh, because this story is about disagreements in the body of Christ. Uh, disagreements over opinions. And Christians and churches have those all the time. They've had them for 2,000 years. Different things, different seasons, different times, different topics, but over and over, Christians and churches disagree about certain things. And the Holy Spirit doesn't speak on every one of those. The Spirit... Holy Spirit doesn't say, this is the right answer on this or that. That's why we call them opinions. The Bible does give principles of how to deal with it, but doesn't settle them. Uh, for instance, in the 1400s, I'm sure that part of the church, a large part of the church, still believed the world was flat. Another part of the church thought it was round. Okay, the Bible doesn't tell you which is right or wrong. And I know some of you are saying, well, it does say the circle of the earth. Yeah, it also says the four corners of the earth. So some people pointed to that and said, well, it's flat. Okay. Uh, the Bible doesn't settle every opinion. So I'm not going to pick an issue this morning. I'm not going to pick an opinion. I'm not going to tell you how to apply it. That's your job. But this morning we are going to read a lot of Scripture, uh, just so you are prepared. We're going to, here's where we're going. Acts 15, then we're going to jump to 1 Corinthians 8, then we're going to do a little 1 Corinthians 10, then a little Romans 14. 
And some of you, when you saw those passages, you figured it out. Uh, you know what this is about. This is about a food fight. Okay? Yeah, churches have strange fights. So this was a food fight in the church. So let's start with Acts chapter 15 in just a moment. Uh, first, let's understand what we're reading about. Jews and Gentiles were now Christians. Uh, what happens in Acts 15 is about 20 years after the church began. It began as all Jewish. It moved into Gentiles. Gentiles and Jews were both now Christians, and they came from very, very, very different cultures. The Jews were raised with temple worship. The priests were highly organized, took care of everything. It, you had to prepare before you went to temple. It was very special. Pagans was much more secular. Uh, it was much more hedonistic. Uh, their temples had orgies and parties and drunkenness. That's what they had come from. Uh, Jews and Gentiles had very different diets. They ate different things, and they believed you should or should not eat different things. Uh, their belief in uh, divine beings was completely different. Jews said there is one God. Pagans thought there's lots of gods. Once a pagan came from that multi-god background and found out there is one God, then he realized those false gods were demons. So he had this demon idea also. Jews and Gentiles had very different attitudes about sex. Very different attitudes about holy days and what days should be celebrated and which shouldn't. They were very, very different folks. And now 20 years after the church began, in about AD 48 probably, Acts 15 happens, and Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. Let's go to Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Okay, so here's what happened. Paul's in Antioch. They've got a mainly Gentile church, probably. Some Jewish, formerly Jewish Christians come down and say, all you guys got to be circumcised. You got to follow the law of Moses or you're not saved. Verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Okay. This was worth arguing about. Okay. This was worth fighting about. Because these teachers had come down and said, you can't be saved by grace. You have to be saved by grace plus keeping all of these other rules and regulations. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, we will stand firm on that. So there was much dissension and debate with them. But look what happened. After that dissension and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They didn't get it settled. Here's these teachers teaching, you've got to keep the law of Moses. And Paul, an apostle had much dissension and debate with them, and they couldn't settle it. So they went to Jerusalem. They went to where some of the apostles still were and the elders of the church there. They went up, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them 
and order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, so Paul and Barnabas show up, do their report, say here's what's going on to the apostles and elders in the whole church and some who were formerly Pharisees who firmly believed you had to keep the law of Moses to be saved, stood up and said, you got to circumcise them, you got to make them keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. See that? The apostles and the elders went apart. They went alone and discussed this. They said, what are we going to do about this? And look at verse 7. And after there had been much debate, the apostles and elders didn't have the right answer immediately. They had to discuss it. They debated it. They prayed about it. They worked on it. And while they were working on it, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And he goes on. He reminds them, okay, guys, remember, I was the first one to convert a Gentile, Brother Cornelius. And you remember when that happened, God did not make a distinction. He didn't say these Gentiles have got to do this and you Jews have got to do that. He didn't make that distinction. So why are we now trying to place a yoke on the Gentiles? Why are we trying to add something? Verse 11, we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. Okay, so Peter reminded them, okay, where are we coming up with this additional stuff? Uh, he saved them by grace, just like he did us. Then in verse 13, it says, James stood up. Let me ask you elders, how would you like to be in an elders meeting where Peter and James are there? Huh? Well, <laughs> would that help discussion or what? Uh, yeah, Peter and James were part of this. Okay, so Peter had his say, and now James stands up, and in verse 19, he said, here's my judgment. Here's what I think we ought to do. I don't think we should trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write them and tell them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, so James says, here's my judgment. We got all these Jewish, formerly Jewish Christians, got all these rules and regulations they want to keep. Here's four things we ought to tell them. Now, two of those come from the Jewish background, two from the Gentile background. Food polluted by idols and sexual immorality were part of pagan worship. Not eating things strangled and not drinking blood came from the Jewish background. That was Jewish law, Leviticus 17 and other places. Okay, And Jews today still practice that. Okay? You've heard the term kosher. Uh, when I, we lived in another city, we had some friends at work that were uh, Orthodox Jewish. Last name was Levine, so they came from the tribe of Levi. Okay? They were Orthodox Jewish. And in the town we lived, there was no kosher butcher. Uh, they drove 40 miles to the next town to buy their meat at a kosher butcher. And a kosher butcher bought meat 
that had been certified by a rabbi that the animal's blood had been drained properly. So there wasn't blood in the meat. It had to be properly done, overseen by a rabbi, and they drove 40 miles to get their meat. Okay, so that's part of this background here and what James recommends. Now, listen to his reason, verse 24, or 21. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him. He's read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Here's James' reasoning. He says, all right, let's tell the Gentiles not to do this. Not because it's wrong, but because there's so many lost Jews in that town, wherever they are, that their influence will be affected if they do this. So let's tell them not to do it. Yeah, that's the reasoning here. Verse 22, that seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church. So they wrote the letter to the Gentiles, and you can read about the letter there at the end of it. And they said in verse 28, uh, we don't want to lay on you any greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what's been strangled from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. Okay, let's check one thing in verse six, chapter 16. Because after that happened, Paul and Silas went on another trip. And they went to Derbe and Lystra and Galatia and Troas and Philippi, all kinds of Gentile cities. And look at Acts chapter 16, verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Okay? The apostles and elders came up with this judgment, sent it to Antioch, but then Paul and Silas took it with them, and wherever they went to a Gentile town, they told them about the grace of the Lord Jesus, they baptized them into Christ, and then they said, now you Gentiles, here's some things you ought to do. There's some wise things that our elders and apostles have said, and you need to obey those. Okay, sounds like it's settled, isn't it? Sounds like this fight's over. Let's jump forward about seven years. Uh, probably when Paul wrote to Corinth was about seven years after what happened in Acts 15. And he's writing to Corinth about all their problems, and they had a bunch of them. But one of the problems they had was they were having a food fight. And so Paul addresses that. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, Now concerning food offered to idols. Okay, let's back up just a little bit and get a little history here, make sure we understand. Pagan temples also sacrificed animals to their gods. The Jews did it in their temple. Pagans did it in their temple. The pagans then ate the meat that had been sacrificed. And in fact, uh, they've uncovered some pagan temples. There's one in Corinth, in fact, to Asclepius. And it had three separate dining rooms. It was kind of a temple restaurant. And that's the way they did it. The, the middle was a sacrificial altar. The priest would sacrifice to the, the, the false gods. And then they would serve the meat to people that had come to the temple restaurant to eat. And it was probably... 
as much social as it was religious, but there was still that tie there. That meat had just been sacrificed to a certain false god. Then they took the meat to the table, served it to the people. What was left over at the end of the day, they sent to the markets, and it was sold in the markets to anybody and everybody that wanted meat. Okay. Now, in Corinth, that was a problem because there were ex-Jews, there were ex-pagans that had all become Christians, and they didn't know what to do about this. They didn't know if they should go to the temple, the restaurant that happened to be in a temple. They didn't know if they should buy meat that was offered, sold at the market because they didn't know if it had been offered or not. They had all sorts of confusion. So Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians 8, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What's the problem here? In Corinth, both sides, the people that said you shouldn't eat this meat, the side that said nothing wrong with eating that meat, both knew they were absolutely right. And so Paul starts out and says, we all got knowledge. Okay? But knowledge puffs up, love builds up. What's the problem in Corinth? The problem's not about who's right and wrong. The problem is not about who knows the right answer. The problem is with what they know, they're not exercising it in love. So in verse 2, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he doesn't yet know what he ought to know. <laughs> Whoever thinks they got the answer to this doesn't know what they ought to know. What should they know? They should know that love is how you build up. Not what you know, not being right, but lovingly knowing something. That's how you build people up. It's not about being right. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. It's no big deal. There's nothing wrong with the meat. We know that. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Put yourself in the place of a former pagan who had grown up going to these uh, temples and eating the meat and understanding that their thought was the more of the meat that you ate, the more the God was inside you. The more you got, the more of the God you got. Okay? So there was an attachment, a physical, spiritual attachment between the meat and the God, the demon, so now that meat, even if you didn't sacrifice it yourself or believe in that anymore, that meat had some kind of demon virus on it. Okay? There was some kind of demon virus there that if you ate that meat, the demon was going to get in you. Okay? So Paul says, we know that 
the meat, nothing's wrong with the meat, but not everybody knows that. Some make this connection because of their background. Uh, <clears throat> verse 8, we're no worse off if we don't eat, and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's the word of God, folks. Paul says, if this will bother my brother, then I won't eat it. I know better. I know it's all right. I know the right answer. But if it bothers my brother, I won't. My brother is more important than my right. Now, let me point out, uh, yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. I thought I forgot something. I uh, thought it was wrong, but that was a mistake. All right, First Corinthians 10. Paul goes on and explains a little more detail. Verse 19, he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? So Paul says, all right, about going to the temple restaurant, you got to understand what's going on there. They're sacrificing to demons. And I don't want you to have any part of that. You can't do that. Verse 23, he explains why. He says, all things are lawful. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then he gets a little more detailed. He says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any questions. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any questions. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Okay, you get the drift of that? You know the right answer. So you do what you know is right, but if somebody's got a problem with it, if somebody says to you, are, are you going to eat idol-sacrificed food? Well, then don't. Not because you don't have the right to. It's not about your conscience. It's about their conscience. If it bothers them, don't do it. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So he says, whatever you know about this, eating, drinking, whatever it is, don't offend Jews or Greeks or anybody in the church. Okay? Sounds like we got her settled there in Corinth, doesn't it? A year or two later, Paul had to write to Rome. 
the church in Rome was having a food fight. Okay, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay, uh, we'll get to the details of this in a second, but you understand what he's saying there? There's going to be people coming that have all kinds of different opinions about things, and some are stronger than others, and some are weaker than others, and all of that, and welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. I'm reminded of a number of years ago, a fellow came here, had been watching Know Your Bible, and he came, he wanted to be a part of Northside, and I was talking to him in my office, and I found out about his background and his baptism and all of that, and I asked him, why are you leaving the church that you're leaving? He said, well, they had me teaching a teen class, and and I told the teens this, and he told me a, a matter of opinion that he had taught them and told them they needed to do it his way. And he said, I got in trouble for that. And I said, well, you'd get in trouble for that here too. I, I said, I don't believe exactly what you believe, but you can believe that. That's okay. You, you're welcome here, and you can believe that till you die, but... If you start teaching other people that, or dividing the body over it, or telling people they have to do it your way, then you're going to have trouble here too. Okay? That's what Paul says. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And let me correct something here. Most, a lot of people say this is a chapter about the weak and the strong. And Paul does mention weak or are strong down in verse, uh, chapter 15. But what he's really talking about is not weak and strong, but somebody that knows they're right and somebody that's weak compared to that knowledge, but they think they know what's right too. Uh, this is a, a very tricky part of this teaching. Think about it. Uh, every opinion fight you've ever seen, whether it's in the church or out, who thinks they are the strong one in the argument? Both of them. Both of them. They both think, I have got the answer to this, and this other person just hadn't studied it enough yet. This person just doesn't understand. They're not quite as smart as me. They're weak. I got it. Both sides think that. Okay. So you can apply this. To everybody, I think. And Paul goes on and says, listen to this, verse 3. He doesn't talk about strong or weak here. Listen to how he says it, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another. Some people thought you ought to keep the Sabbath. Some thought you ought to keep the Passover. Some didn't. All of that was going on in Rome. He said each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Opinions here. Be convinced in your own mind, but don't despise each other. Don't judge each other. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, 
Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. To good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That's the story. That's what happened with this food fight that we know about in the first 20, 25 years of the New Testament church. Now, the story is easy to hear and understand, I think. The hard part's applying it. Okay, so here's some principles. Here's some principles for you. And this is some of the things I saw in this story. I imagine you saw other things and different things and better things. But here's just a few of the things I saw that I think I need to try to apply. First of all, concern for the lost is more important than legal behavior. You understand that the ruling, the initial ruling, was don't do these things, not because they're necessarily wrong, but don't do them because there's so many lost Jews in every town that we got to make sure we got a concern for them. Okay? Secondly, I think concern for a brother or a sister is more important than my rights. Paul said that over and over in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. If I know what's right. I know I got the legal right to do that. I know he's wrong, but I'm not going to make him stumble. Thirdly, love is more important than knowledge. Paul started out that way. He said, everybody knows the right answer. But the trick is whether you apply that in love or not. Fourthly, unity is more important than opinions. Paul said, somebody comes and they've got an opinion, okay, welcome them. Be one body of Christ, but don't argue over that. Keep the unity. And finally, I think that it said that building up is more important than being right. Building up somebody in the body of Christ is much more important than being right about what you know. Those are just some of the things I think that I need to apply, and I hope you saw some things that you need to apply with whatever issue you picked to think about today. Let's close with the same passage that I closed with last week. Uh, John chapter 17, we read that a couple of times in the last few months. Jesus prayed for unity. His final prayer, his high priestly prayer, this is what he asked God for. He said, I want my followers, all the people that believe in me, I want them to be one. I want them to be as one as you and I, Father, are. I want them to be perfectly one so that the world will believe. This was Jesus' solution for how the world would believe that he had come as the the Messiah, 
is that his followers would be one. Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for unity in the church universal. That's what he was praying about here. He also prayed for unity at Northside. He also prayed for unity between you and any brother or sister that's been saved by grace who has a different opinion from you. That's what Jesus was praying for. The lesson is yours. If you have a public need this morning, we're going to invite you to stand and sing, and the elders will be at back to receive you if you have a request. Let's stand and sing.